Good Wednesday morning, and today we'll be talking about why to start a book club with Dr. John Patrick. Um, I didn't do that for a long while. Um, I've been a bit of a loner most of my life because I grew up in a blue-collar environment, and there weren't many people with books on the street where I grew up. In fact, our house was probably the only one. Uh, and I, it turned out I was an academic. I didn't know that for a long while. So where do books come into it? Well, God made me the way he did. So I read and remembered virtually everything I read without realizing that that wasn't everybody's experience. Uh, so uh, I didn't carry lots of books around university, just a notebook. Uh, and it turned out that I was only fit to be an academic. And so I went into research and was, yeah, I'm blessed in that area to have done some interesting and important things. Uh, we had a, a wonderful traveling life. Uh, we started off in London, England, and then went to Oxford, and then to Jamaica for seven years to study malnourished children. And then uh, it was Harvard or Ottawa, and Ottawa is much more civilized. Um, and we've been there ever since with trips to Africa and Jamaica and other places. In fact, I, I've been in over 80 countries now uh, as a result of the third part of my life, which is where the book club comes in. Um, I didn't realize what happens to us when we go to university. And it's happening in the church as well, and we don't notice it. Uh, the presumption of the university is that everything is a problem of ignorance, and therefore they can solve it. But if you've got children, you know the problem is not ignorance. The problem lies with the will. If you examine your own heart and mind, you know the problem lies with the will. We're not ignorant about what we ought to do. We don't have the power to do it. Now, I grew up in a very, very Bible-centered home and church. And I never questioned that the Bible was true. Um, it seemed to me obvious that it was for purely historical reasons, although I wouldn't have put it that way when I was a child. And in the process, it, it was a, a church where a lot of Bible was read, and the, my parents' idea of a good Saturday afternoon in the summer was to go to a Bible conference, and I often went too. And I began to realize that I could divide people up into two groups. Uh, this was intuitive, not very well articulated that time, but teachers at school who were good, I could classify them and I knew who the best ones were and they were passing one form of information. But in the church and in the theological end of the spectrum, there was a level of integrity and honesty every now and again, not often enough, uh, which was very special. Um, I just knew that that was the case. I didn't do anything about it. So I went off on my academic career and uh, did really was silent about my faith in the context of the university to any significant degree uh, for a long while. Uh, I was well into my 30s before uh, in Jamaica some students picked up that I thought about things in a somewhat different way uh, and I changed their lives as I discovered many years later by introducing them to people they should have read and hadn't because I read widely for most of my life until I got to be, you know, over, over 65. I was reading a book a week unrelated to any academic requirement. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, now I'm rereading books and reading more slowly. Uh, that's important too. So uh, I was bullied into going off to Africa with uh, to help some missionaries with the problem of malnourished children. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to solve it because we had solved it at the laboratory level and at the academic level, but it wasn't working in Africa. I didn't want to go, but the family did, and we went. And on the way, I needed a book to read, and I put, picked up a book called The Closing of the American Mind that had been published that year, 1987, mm -hmm. by Alan Bloom from the University of Chicago. Now, Alan Bloom was one of the best teachers of Plato and Aristotle that America's produced. Third-generation Jew in America. Um, also an atheist and a radical homosexual. But he wrote the book because way back then he could see that the American education system was failing, uh, as it's failing in the church too. I mean, in your first century in America, most of your pastors in Protestant churches were, could handle Greek, and many of them Hebrew. That's not true anymore. Now, they have to be able to manipulate your feelings, which is not what the Bible is about and not what Christianity is about. And Bloom wanted the students who came to him to be biblically literate because although he was an atheist he needed the metaphors of the bible now i usually illustrate this to the youngsters coming into medical school because often i would be asked to speak to them fairly early on in frosh week because i could be somewhat amusing a little ironic and get under their skin uh, and i would say you're going to be taught medicine using the biopsychosocial model of medicine and as far as I'm concerned, that model has been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And my guess is that no more than one of you know what I've just said. They understood every word in the sentence, but if they did not recognize the biblical illusion, they missed the meaning. And we're, li we're living in a world where we're losing meaning. That's why Jordan Peterson is so popular. Mm -hmm. But even he hasn't really cottoned on to how central it is. And... Uh, that's at the heart of why Christians should begin reading properly again. So I couldn't believe it was as bad as Bloom said. And when I got back to Ottawa in a lecture, I said to the students, if Alan Bloom is right, you're an ignorant bunch. And afterwards, nowadays, if you said that, there'd be a riot. But this was, you know, uh, nearly 40 years ago. Um, but 20 or so of them came and demanded an apology. And I said, well, um, it wasn't me that said it. It was Alan Bloom, and he's not here to apologize, and I'm not going to without some evidence. So why don't we do the, the test? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, I think Bloom is saying that if you don't know the Bible, you cannot understand the Western tradition of learning that has produced what we have. Uh, it hasn't happened anywhere else in the, the same way. Uh, so you all think Gandhi was a great guy. Uh, and he thought the Sermon on the Mount was the greatest piece of literature ever written. Tell me how it starts and what it says. They couldn't. And I said, well, there you are. You're ignorant. There's the greatest piece of literature in the world found from the Bible, and you don't know a word of it. And then, bless them, they said, well, what are you going to do about it? And in my usual sympathetic manner, I said, uh, well, that's your problem, not mine. I've got lots to do. They said, but you claim to know things we don't. Why don't you teach us? Without thinking, I said, well, what you need is an, act an agnostics anonymous group because you don't even know the questions, let alone the answers. 
and uh, we started reading together. And it was that was profitable. I, I had to do it after Tarsis because sometimes it would go with pizza because it would go for a couple of hours or more. Um, and I got about 25% of the class every year. And the only prerequisite was you couldn't claim to be a Christian, which was interesting. The Christians crept in after we'd started, but they were not allowed to speak. Um, fascinating. Uh, that came to an end because other things started to happen. But I'd begun to think more carefully about why I was different and where it had come from. And I began to value much more deeply the way my mother, realizing I had the mind I had, didn't. She taught Sunday school for 35 years without a break. The other kids learned a verse or two, and I learned a chunk. Uh, so I have a vast amount of scripture that can come to mind when it's needed because it was put in at the right time. The first seven years of, of your children's life, dad has got to put the stories into the Bible, uh, of the Bible, into the child's mind if he's going to be successful. But that's another talk. So um, I realized as I walked away from those kids that although I could give some account of the Sermon on the Mount, I couldn't do an adequate job. Because if you're made to be a professor, you don't need notes for lectures on stuff you know. Uh, I never took notes uh, to undergraduate lectures in for, for medical students. I took a piece of paper, so they thought I'd done some preparation, but I didn't do any. But anybody could do what professors do, but not in the time. And you should, you should not get into something you can't do easily as your main activity. Uh, push yourself to the limit, but live reasonably, properly. And, but as I walked away, it was quite clear to me that I couldn't do that with the Sermon on the Mount. So this was the most important thing that happened to me in my life is I'd read Bonhoeffer's, uh, I, I don't know where I found it, I know it was Bonhoeffer. I haven't been able to track it down again. But somewhere, maybe it was in a letter, I don't know where it was, he said, when your Christian life is in the doldrums, the most Christian lives get into that state every now and again. Ask God for a passage of scripture from him to you in a personal way and ask him to bring it to life. Well, I'd been praying that prayer and obviously for me it was going to be the Sermon on the Mount. It now, it has been coming into my mind every day for the last 30 years at some point. And it takes me three hours to do the Sermon on the Mount if I do it properly. Because I think that's roughly how long people made Jesus talk. Um, what happened next was that somehow uh, an elderly lady in the city learned that I was very interested in the Sermon on the Mount and she asked me uh, whether I would teach the adult Sunday school and I said well I need at least four weeks she said done and that's where Augustine College began and we'll pick that up next time mm -hmm. uh, but what came out of it was also an understanding of how we need to get back to reading properly because the first thing that happened was a group of professors came together and we all realized that students were going to university with a faith and coming back with it in only about 20% of cases. And going to Bible school actually made it less likely that you'd come back with a faith. Uh, my colleagues can rob students of their mind, their virginity, uh, and their faith in random order in six months. Mm -hmm. And they take malicious pleasure in doing it. Uh, miserable people that they are. 
and we didn't know what to do. So there was a reason for the, the reading group. Most reading groups start off because people want some fellowship together and books make an easy way to do it. This is much more important than this. When Paul said to Timothy, study, study to make yourself a workman uh, approved by God. Uh, we are Logos people, word people. Uh, it needs serious work. Now, we, we need all, all four means of, of grace. They continue the Apostles' Doctrine, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayers. But the Apostles' Doctrine is the first one on the list. And I could prove to any of you who are listening at the moment very easily that you haven't done this. Because if you had done it properly, you would be able to give an account of the content of at least all the books of the New Testament without opening the Bible. Uh, you wouldn't get it entirely accurate, but you, you would have a concept of the structure. And if you go about it properly, and we can talk about that on another occasion, uh, you can do that. It's the standard medieval learning tool. So we had a reason for the, for the reading group. We were all bored by what passes for a sermon these days. Uh, we've seen that students come to university unable to push back on a culture that is ultimately totally dependent upon uh, Judeo-Christian thought. That's crazy. And so we read everything we could find from the Greeks to uh, Alistair McIntyre in the 20th century. And that gave us the framework for what eventually became Augustine College. So you need to find the people in your church and in your group who are hungry for growth. And that's what you're after. My suggestion is that you find a, a passage of, from literature that uh, you could ask your pastor to allow you to put into the church bulletin and say, if this rings a bell with you and you want to go further, come and talk to me and you'll have your reading group. Most professionals, especially professional men, do not enjoy church. Uh, you have to put aside your mind to enjoy church and that's ridiculous. And particularly if you've had a bad week, I mean, as a physician, you're going to have bad weeks quite often. Uh, in the sense that you, at the end of the week, you didn't reach the standard you should have done all the while. So the first thing you need is repentance and forgiveness. And most churches don't even begin with that. His uh, one phrase uh, that captures that, and it's this. It says, repentance is not something God demands of you that he could forego if he wished. Repentance is simply a description of what coming to God is like. Mm -hmm. You can talk about that for a long while. That's from, I think, it's from the early part of mere Christianity in the broadcast talks. It was in the first one, but um, it's there. But the, the, the other phrase that I would suggest you might, paragraph you might think about is this one. And I, I'm quoting, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, and you need to get to the point where you can paraphrase. Uh, this is Lewis in The Abolition of Man towards the end of the first chapter, which most people get bored with because it, they don't understand what's going on, which is a pity. They should struggle through it. He, he knew what he was doing. But he says, for the wise men of old, by which he means the medievals, 
the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform your soul to objective reality. That, of course, is God. And the solution was wisdom and self-discipline and virtue. For the modern person, the first, the cardinal problem of human life is how to conform reality to our desires. And the solution is technique. The trans movement is a classic example of it, but there are many more. And we do it in church as well. The gospel is reduced and we try to take control of it. That's wrong. So there's a book, a couple of books there, Mere Christianity and the Abolition of Man. But that short paragraph, first of all, you need to read the first chapter of the Abolition of Man, find it, think about it. And then if it, if it bites you, uh, put it in your church bulletin and see if you can find others. Um, I know people who have done that, people who were not enjoying church. And one of them said to me uh, after when I met again later, he said, oh, after you visited, uh, I took two remaining in the narthex while people were dropping off their family. And I noticed there were guys who were very kind to their family. They drove them right up to the door and said, I'll go and park. But they went and parked at Starbucks. They didn't come back till the kids and mum came out of Sunday school and they were there for, the, for that part of the service. But they couldn't stand the first part. It wasn't what they needed. And he said, so I started a reading group in church during the first half of the service. In fact, often we didn't go to the service uh, because it was serious. So once you have that context, there are few things better than serious conversation between Christians who know they're exploring something they haven't explored before and they wish they had. Now, the next book on the series that if you're scientifically orientated, and even if you're not, even I read The Abolition of Man every couple of years, but I probably read Leslie Newbegin in part every year just to remind myself of how important it is. That's a book called Foolishness to the Greeks by Leslie Newbegin. Um, a brilliant man who went to India as a missionary, a liberal missionary, and came back as an evangelical. Uh, but he, he, he has so much to say that Christians could use if they would only sit down and think about it enough, particularly the idea of tacit knowledge. We, every real Christian has tacit knowledge. That is knowledge that they know is true, but they cannot describe in the way they would like to, the scientific way, which we've been conned into thinking is the only way. Your conversion cannot be explained in a way that he can fit it on anyone else. We don't choose Christ. Christ comes to us. We get the count and the mouse the wrong way around. We're the mouse. Tacit knowledge is what happens. What has happened to you when you know somehow I've been changed and you can't explain why but it's one it's the most important thing in your life and you know it's true hmm. but uh, um, Newbegin develops that thought brilliantly starting from Michael Polanyi um, and it's worth the struggle that you need to take on to do that um, another book that might work very well for you would be Rodney Stark's For the Glory of God. Uh, if you're scientific, if it's the science end of the spectrum, then just go to the chapter on God's handiwork. Um, he thought that he was doing original work and then he discovered that 
most serious historians of science don't agree with the rest of the university because the rest of the university doesn't really listen to them. But they've, been, they've known for 20 or 30 years that an honest description of how we came to be where we are now would not be that the church was a problem we had to get rid of, which is what most academics think, uh, but that the church was the only way we could get to where we are. So they would put it like this, the church was not a perfect patron of science. Nobody's going to pretend that it is. But it was the only patron of science. You cannot do an experiment if you're a pagan because you can't believe in it. And if you don't believe there's order on the, under the apparent chaos of life and nature, then there's no reason to do an, exper to do an experiment. So that would lead you into the, the full book of Lindbergh, which is uh, much more of a serious read, but Stark is enough. Uh, if everybody in the church had read that, it, the church would be a different place. For the young people who you might want to work with, Peter Kraft is probably the, the best person to start with, and I would suggest that you read for your own benefit um, a refutation of moral relativism. Um, and if it doesn't have an impact on you, I'd be amazed. Uh, finally, for this introductory talk, uh, you've got to read Bonhoeffer at some point. Uh, the cost of discipleship is worth buying for the first chapter alone. And you ought to have a copy of Augustine Confessions by your bed and read a paragraph a night. Um, it was the first book that was truly evangelical in the sense of being a book about conversion. And it changed. Augustine set the agenda for the next 1500 years. So, and yet most evangelicals have not read it. Now, the last book on the list, don't try and read yet. If you see a cheap secondhand copy, pick it up, but don't think you'll handle it very quickly. It takes time. But it's probably one of the most not probably, it is one of the most important books written in the last 50 years by a man who started as a Marxist and is now uh, a Thomas Aquinas uh, Catholic. Um, I can give you a little sense of what it's about that will help you. And it might be worth you finding a copy so that you can take the first four pages and chop out bits from that and the last page. But the, the first four pages, is McIntyre giving you his account of why he wrote the book, and I can shorten it for you. He says that we live in a very strange world, and the easiest way I can begin to describe to you what I think has happened, which most people will not accept as true, is that we have lost our way in a very particular sort of way. We've lost the story of meaning. So he says, I want you to imagine that a, a no, the, the, the world becomes upset with what's going wrong and begins to blame scientists for it. You see, they're doing that at the moment. He, he predicted all that's happening at the moment. They say, if we had had this science, we'd be living in a wonderful green paradise. Of course, that's total rubbish, but there you go. Um, and so they lynch the scientists, blow up the laboratories, and burn the libraries. And then, of course, things are much worse. 
So a know-nothing government tries to reinvent science. It finds the odd bit of a chapter here, uh, an audio there, but it's not connected from an overarching story of what science really is. Because even the scientists don't know their own story now. And so they, they're really being turned into technocrats rather than truly scientists. That's where we're headed. And he says, uh, it's a disaster. Uh, and then he lays out the, 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 the consequences of that mistake in a philosophical history of the Western world, which is done in a very interesting way because he starts quite modern with emotivism, the, the total centrality of feeling to the modern person, especially the young. But you listen after church on Sunday morning, you don't anyone say, my goodness, that sermon made me think differently. Everybody asks you how you feel. We all know how we feel. We feel bad because that's until we confess and then we feel good. But that's not our job. Feelings are gods. We can't manufacture feelings that work. When we sing happy songs, the effect's worn off by the time we get to the door. When scripture is expounded and say so you get to the point you must be renewed in your mind, that can make you feel very unhappy indeed as you realize you don't have anything that could be labeled a Christian mind. You can't defend a Christian position on anything very well. I was pro-choice for 20 years because I didn't think about it. I only had to think about it for one long afternoon when God got on my case and it all changed. So at the end of that book, to give you some hope, McIntyre writes something like this. He says, if you follow my argument, then you will understand that I am proposing that we have already entered into a second dark ages. But we should not be entirely without hope because the last time this happened, good men and women withdrew from the task of shoring up the Roman Imperium into the task of forming communities within which they could keep the civilities and the virtues alive. The only difference is the solution, of course, was the monasteries. The only difference is last time the barbarians were waiting at the gate. This time, they have been ruling us for quite some time. And it is our failure to recognize that that is at the heart of our problem. We are waiting for a doubtless new St. Benedict. Amen. And what was the name of that book, John? I don't think I can. After that. Virtue, that was. After Virtue? Yeah. Okay. But, uh, well, they've got the warning. Uh, uh, years ago, <laughs> David Stevens interviewed me on, uh, he does a thing called Doctor's Digest, or did he's retired now, but yeah, I would be on once or twice a year. So there's almost all evangelical doctors have heard me on the tapes or CDs of Doctor's Digest. And, what took me from a very contented, lazy, self-centered academic into what I did for the last 25 years was an interview with David Stevens, who somehow came across a, a recording I didn't know I'd made because I didn't make recordings. And he said, well, it's amateur. And I still to this day don't know where it was recorded. Uh, but it was called The Myth of Moral Neutrality. And he'd just returned from being a missionary in Africa to run um, the Christian uh, 
Medical Dental Association of the US, 20,000 members. Yeah. And uh, he's a smart man, but not properly educated at that point. He's made up for it since, but he didn't need anything other than what he took with him to be a wonderful doctor and actually found what is now the best teaching hospital in in Kenya. But he arrived to take over this job and he realized that medicine was sailing towards very choppy waters. He had no idea what. I mean, mm-hmm. no idea how to attack it because it was basically a church on a big scale for doctors. It was a fellowship program. There's nothing wrong with that. They'd go to conferences to have people to talk to where they didn't have Hillary looking over their shoulder with the wretched HIPAA regulations. Hmm. But he knew he needed much more and he he called me and once I'd got used to his accent, he said, I've just listened to a tape of yours six times. I don't normally do that. And I said, it can't be me. I I don't make tapes. He said, it's your voice. I couldn't argue with that. I asked what it was called, and it was the myth of morality. And I said, well, yeah, I've written a, a little pamphlet with that title. He said, well, it's an amateur recording, but it's the first thing that really helps. And I want to send a decent copy to all my uh, members. Mm-hmm. So will you come and record it properly in the States? So uh, I did. I recorded several talks, but the last one was the funniest at the end of it was at a conference and he said before you go back can we have a a free discussion with a tape recorder running because I've got lots of questions for you yeah so we did and at the end he said I haven't thought about almost everything you talked about what books made you think like this and I just listed some books that were by my bed. Most of them stay there all the while. The Augustine's Confession is always by my bed. Um, but I, uh, it happened that after virtue was one of them. And, and, uh, 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 quite a few. Were, anyway, I listed half a dozen of them. And uh, he being the man he is, an entrepreneur and incredibly good at what he does, he went back to the office, played the tape to them. He said, the guys will want this those books. So he said, get some, ring up the publishers and see if you get a good price on each of them. And he sold them uh, for about 50 or 60 bucks, uh, which was a good deal, uh, and called it the Thinking Doctor's Library, as though half a dozen books could make a library. But uh, I had no idea what was happening. And on the list was After Virtue. He didn't ask me about this. And I've been teased ever since about that by doctors who say, you ruined my life for a couple of years. You know, it took me that long to read that book. Mm. But then they always say, but it's after the Bible, it's probably had more impact on me than any other. Mm. So books are, well, there's a few thousand of them in this house. Yeah. yeah. I was talking to your wife, Sally, and she was uh, giving me a She's hard time. To get rid right? of them. <laughs> Oh, is she? Well, she was giving me a hard time because she didn't see any books in my background. She said, your background is very boring. There's no books in it. Um, okay, things things I want to do is, can you put together a list of, hey, here's some books to get started with for the non-scientist, non-doctor, uh, the, yeah. let's say the... Um, uh, well, most of those, uh, for the, uh, have you got that list that I've just, or do you want me to do that list again for you? I took notes you, on. You've got it recorded. But, yeah, I got it but recorded. We, we, but. we can send it to you. That's all right. Yeah, let's and do that. The, the only one, in fact, they're, they're all for non-scientists as well. 
Okay. Um, and those are the ones I would start with. Um, so as takeaways for this, we will put together a list of books. Your yeah. recommendation is you got to find a group of people who are interested and you recommended a good way to approach that is to somehow yeah. post up something within the church. If you have a bulletin or a newsletter or yeah. for us, we have a Facebook group. So you can post up something and say, hey, I'm going to be reading you've this got to book. Do the reading yourself and find a, a paragraph that will bring you to life that challenges you. Okay. Now, for you, I would suggest you probably never read First Things, have you? I've been at the website, right? It's a magazine. It has a website. Okay. I have not, I've skimmed the website, but I have not read it. Well, go to the website. Yeah. And put in um, Budzizuski. I've given it you phonetically B U D Z I S Z E W S K I. And he has a. uh, an article well, some years ago, The Revenge of Conscience. It's, about, it's 11 pages, but if you don't find something in that that gets you, I'll be very surprised. But you'll find that one on, on, on my website. It's listed amongst papers that you might like to read. And uh, I'll, I'll put a few of those on as well. So. Okay. And if you guys are watching this, if you're watching this on YouTube, I'll try to link as much of this I can down below so that yeah. you have access to all this stuff. And hopefully we'll I find would a way never to watch it. myself willingly. <laughs> and hopefully we'll put this on YouTube or John's website. Um, we're going to continue to do these on Wednesdays and ask questions. Uh, I was taking notes during the talk today and yeah. we have a ton of questions that we can keep going. Uh, yeah. But if you have questions that you want answered and you're watching well, we'll, this online. We'll, we'll go to the... Uh, the Augustine College program next. How that yes. how that reading group, what it produced. So with that being said, is there anything else you want to share? Or can I wrap this up for us today? I think you can wrap it up at the moment. That's great. Perfect. Um, thanks, Sean. And thank you guys all for listening. Well, thank you for doing this. What is, no, why did John start Augustine College? That's what we're going to, that is what we are going to tackle next week. We're going to learn all about that, what it is and why it exists. I didn't start it. It's God's project. And six of us who didn't know that we were in the same university were bullied into doing it. So uh, how did this lead to Augustine College? But no That's credit. a better way, yeah. That's what we'll start off with next week. Okay. God bless okay. you. Thank you, John. Bye.